0: You're listening to MEND, Life at the Seams. Hi, I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Kreeke. Each season, we deep dive into a select community to hear their tales, in hopes that we may shed some new light of understanding in that given corner of the world. In this season of MEND,
1: we start digging in our own backyards, beneath the stereotypes and sensationalized portrayals of criminals, greed, and environmental destruction to the origins of Humboldt County's marijuana culture, the Back to the Landers, the activists, the families,
0: the farmers, and the medicine makers. In a landscape that is rapidly shifting, we go back to the beginning to see where we started, where we've come this far, and hopefully shed some light on the path that's yet to come. So join us, pull up a chair,
1: pour a glass, and listen. Anthropologists sometimes get accused of going native. In this two-part episode we speak with a native who went anthropologist. After attending Berkeley and then dropping out of society, Gentry Anders found her way to southern Humboldt County where she made a home amongst, as she calls them, refugees. She eventually went back to school for her PhD in anthropology, writing her dissertation on the people and society she was a part of. Her book, Beyond Counterculture, the community of Mateel gives a unique and thorough perspective on life and people in the hills of southern Humboldt before the marijuana boom. This episode is the first part of our interview with Gentry, and we will share the rest of her interview later down the road. For now, we are so grateful to begin this season with her story and perspectives on the formation of this unique community and the people known as the Back to the Landers.
0: It's interesting too because you know you asked Gentry what what our particular interest is in this. So we're basically you know so Annie's coming from this you know her anthropological perspective. You know we've been having this discussion about you know kind of watching you know the marijuana culture as kind of a dying tribe if you will. You know because there was you know this initial back to the land movement of which you write so beautifully from this insider's perspective, and there's what it's become. <laughs> um and so we having lived here a relatively short amount of time you know we've been here i would you know about, about 15 years i think for both of us around that range yeah, 16. um and and we feel like we've watched this shift dramatically and mm-hmm. it's interesting you know just even that parallel between like you know um this kind of subterranean agreement a love agreement right <laughs> and that's what this initial you know the marijuana culture was right was this kind of underground handshake verbal agreement you know we're creating this outside the confines of the law outside the confines of the normative society and so now that it's fully entering into the mainstream society um, you know from our limited perspective we're like wow it's losing a lot you know you I'm just it's interesting the parallels you know between like you know you talk about what you give up um, when you sign away those rights, you know, in a marriage or whatever, and it's—I I feel like it's an interesting parallel, just between watch. You know, how much of this culture have we lost, just by letting it be completely eclipsed and subsumed into the mainstream culture? You know, so and, and
2: by that, by that, do you mean because it's legal now, or by that, do you mean because? so many outside people came in to grow marijuana.
0: I, I would say a little bit of both, but I think the legalization thing is almost secondary. I think we're no. gonna continue to watch it evolve, but from my perspective, it, I think there is just, because it became so profitable, because you know so many people came in who didn't have that just the, those economic, values. You know, right, it was purely, forces. yeah, absolutely. Um, and so our main interest is really in kind of sifting back to what was the initial you know yes there was been a huge wave of people that came in purely driven by the profit margin but what was before then you know mm-hmm. what was it that drove people here to, what was the initial vision and can we reclaim that, you know, by telling those stories, even if it seems like we're completely, we've lost our way in this subculture? Can we reclaim some thread of that just by going and talking to some of the people who held that initial vision, who held that initial um, intention when they moved up here and kind of said, screw it, <laughs> to the mainstream culture? Um, right. That's, so um,
2: d- Dropping out is what we call, you know, mm-hmm. I called it in my book. I call that the discontinuity experience. Yeah. Meaning that something that you just hit the wall. You know, you just hit the wall. I, you know, whatever was intended for me to do, you know, the expectations that um, were placed upon me by my cult, my the mainstream culture, my parents, my church, whatever. Um, I can't do that i I cannot do that. If I do that, I will give up uh the who who the the deepest part of me is, who the real part of me is. And it could be um, you know, for some people, it was the war. it was being drafted. I was married to a Vietnam vet, you know, so I'm sort of familiar with that one. Um, it could be divorce. Uh, it could be women hitting the wall on um, uh, what is expected of me uh, as a as a wife in the mainstream society. Um, so, for a lot of people, um, it was um, it was it was not there was not initially a vision. It's not I am going to go to the country and build a new society you know, or I you know, I'm not, I'm gonna to go to the country and you know, um and build a community. That was not what happened. I always thought of it initially I thought of it as refugees. These people are refugees from mainstream society. They cannot fit in, they're unemployable, they're unweddable uh and um and what they're doing is is leaving whatever there was for them in mainstream society and that now we're just going to strike out and see what's going to happen. And then there was a grapevine. There was a, um, there was a word of mouth. Oh, one of the places you can go is southern Humboldt County. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people that just got picked up hitchhiking. You know, they didn't know where they were going. I, I guess I'm going north. You know, get picked up by a bunch of hippies from Southern Humboldt. Oh, I'll guess I'll go to Southern Humboldt. That's where it is. I I've, I've talked to people who were just driving around and their car broke down in Miranda. And they said, Oh, this must be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, in my case, per you know, um, uh, we we were living in our truck with our with our two kids, and we had friends from Berkeley. Uh, people that I knew in Berkeley through uh, anthropology department and uh, other ways. Um, uh, And we just kept, we were driving up and down the West Coast back and forth, just looking for a place where an interracial family would feel, you know, as comfortable as possible. And we kept ending up in Redway to visit our friends there. And so finally we said, well, we keep ending up here. This must be it. So that, you know, that's what the initial thing was. And then for me, um, how I experienced this is that because so many people, a a high concentration of people who had dropped out just ended up in this same place, you know, and a big, of course, a big part of it was that there was cheap land to be bought. Um, Because there was a high concentration, then people started looking around saying, well, I don't want to send my kids to the mainstream school um I certainly did not because my kids were black um i don't want um I don't want to send my kids to the mainstream school um i don't i I'm having a baby I don't want to have to deal with the mainstream hospitals they're going to treat me there was a lot of uh, of prejudice against hippies what year is this um nineteen seventy one okay um so, um, we're, I guess we're gonna have to deliver our babies at home.
3: Mm.
2: Okay, next, pretty soon, now there are midwives. Now there are schools being, uh, well, I guess we're gonna have to make our own school. Um, there are schools being developed. Now, I, I would emphasize, um, I think a lot of that energy came from the women. It was the women first, because of the, the need to, to birth babies. Help each other birth babies. I think the midwivery, you know, in my experience, that had a lot to do with it. Um, and uh, because they're dealing with the children, they're thinking about the schools. So uh, I would put those as, as the first beginnings of community. You know, then, then a lot of people went up there that were, um, that did have a vision. It wasn't a community vision, but it was a personal vision. I want to build my own house. Uh, I'm an artist and I want to uh, be, be in a, uh, an aesthetically pleasing situation to produce my art. You know, music, dance, painting, you know, there was a lot of that. So it sort of started becoming an artist community. Right. And that, uh, those people started connecting with each other. So the, the, uh, in my book, I call that spontaneous combustion.
3: Okay
2: that I don't think anybody really thought that was going to happen but it just began to happen all around us and then we started making all these connections to me it was like a miracle I thought when I left Berkeley I thought I'm saying goodbye to everything I'm saying goodbye to my career I'm saying goodbye to um um to the arts I thought you know, I'll never see another music concert. Mm. You know, I'll never see, you know, I'm never going to see live musicians again. Mm. You know, will I ever see, a, go to an art show uh, or a dance show or a play? No, I'm, I'm leaving all of that behind. You know, and I, I grew up in the country. I was raised in the country, you know, mm-hmm. small town in central Florida in the 50s. Mm. Let me tell you. <laughs> so for me to leave Berkeley and come up here, it was like, I'm going back to the Piney woods. <laughs> I'm going back to what I left. I'm going back to what I tried, you know, my damnedest, you know, to get the hell away from. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back to it. And, and then, you know, another thread, um, in my case for sure, um, political. A lot of us came up because... Um, we were just afraid of the political situation. When I um, I left Berkeley in 1970, I was in the middle of everything politically. I was in the free speech movement. I was in the middle of the Vietnam day committee. Um, I was there when people were being killed on, on uh, Telegraph Avenue by the police for uh, People's Park. Um, the political situation was such that a lot of us believed that um, that the FBI or whoever in the federal government, uh, <clears throat> there was a the, the rumors were that they're building concentration camps. They're they're renewing um, the the concentration camps that the Japanese were in. And, and I have no problem calling those concentration camps. That's what they were. Um, that they're rebuilding those out in the valley, and they're going to come and get the political people. They're going to—they're coming for us. And I was uh, freaked out enough by being so in the middle of everything that I thought that could be true. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Um, I'm so I'm going to leave all the political. Stuff and, and this was not long after um, helicopters were spraying nausea gas on the University of California at Berkeley campus indiscriminately. <laughs> I mean, if you can do that, if it's that bad, then um, then I have to leave here. I can't stay here anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. This. Uh, in fact, there was a particular point in my in my career um, on the day that they sprayed the nausea gas. Um, at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, That day, um, my significant other and I and another anthropology friend, um, she had been sprayed badly. We went up to the Rose Garden in Berkeley and we were looking out over the campus and looking at the helicopters and we were saying, you know, I'm the one that said it. I said, um, I can't take any more of this. I, I just can't take any more of it. Um, so I think we're going to have to leave here. And she said, I think you're right. I think we have to leave. And so within a year, in my case, within two weeks, I was gone. That was the end of the semester. I came back for a semester, you know, but but in my heart, I was gone two weeks later, you know, physically, and in my heart, I was gone two weeks later. It took her a year, and she ended up going to a countercultural community further south. But so that there, you know, there are other people that were there in Southern Humboldt County, that were there for the same re- for that reason as well, that we we thought we were hiding, we thought we were removing ourselves uh, from easy access uh, to be persecuted or whatever.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So. Um, so there, you know, those there's all of those threads. Absolutely. But the way the community happened was that just all these people ended up there, mm-hmm. and, and then, then they I... and then they said, "Oh, here are things that we need to have. We, we're mm-hmm. going to have to organize them." Right.
0: i I'm, I would love to if we could just for a moment, just because I'd love to have our our listeners just hear a little bit more um, about. We we've been asking people what their particular role is inside. The marijuana culture, mm-hmm. um, and so I would love it if you could just describe in your own words just a little bit more about um, the work that you've done, the book you've written, um, and just um, the journalism. Yeah, the journal, because we have this huge body of work um, that related to this culture, this subculture, and I would love it if you could just describe to the, the uninitiated <laughs> listener who maybe hasn't heard of your work or what you've done before just a little bit about your role within this community and. work that you've created um, um, related to that if you if you could
2: well um, my role when I first got there um, I did everything that everyone else was doing I mean I I considered myself to have said goodbye to um, any professional aspirations Mm -hmm. and I considered myself uh, to be you know i 'm one of the refugees, but the problem is and uh, and you will understand this because you 're an anthropologist um, Annie that um, you can 't stop doing it
3: <laughs> once
2: you 've learned how to do it you can 't stop doing it <laughs> so um, i I left Berkeley at exactly the point in my t- in my career when I would have been sent um to another uh, somewhere else to study a culture mm. that you know I was a, I had just gotten my master's degree um and I uh, I had a grant you know everything I, I it was all set up um I thought I was going to go to India uh, and and maybe study um, some group there but right at that point is when I when I dropped out from my career but so okay boom here I am and, and I'm looking around me, what's happening around me? Um, hey, I don't need to go to India. <laughs> I got something much more interesting happening right here around me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, so I, the whole time, from maybe the first year I was there, um, everywhere I went, I had a notebook, I had, a, I had my camera, and I made it a point to interview people um, as an anthropologist... Um, I guess I thought maybe I sometime I would write a book about this, but the main thing was that I just couldn't stop doing it, <laughs> because I was all primed to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's how the anthropology part of it started. Now, as part uh, as I will say, and and other anthropo- mainstream anthropologists, you know, and, and I hasten to specify right here, um, my book was a prize winning. PhD dissertation, right? So I have the I have the backing mm-hmm. of three inter, of two internationally famous anthropologists and the head of the biology department at Washington State University. So if anybody wants to, you know, <laughs> quibble, with, quibble with me about whoa was that, you know, you know how scientific was it? Mm-hmm. Um, I have that kind of backing, and people other anthropologists will say, well, you know, did you not go native? Mm-hmm. You know, in anthropology, there's this big thing about, and, oh, we can't go native, you know. Um, and uh, my response to that is, um, I'm not, uh, um, I'm not an anthropologist that went native. I'm a native that went anthropologist. Yeah, no? yeah. we were, uh, we're both. Remarkable. So, so it's a, that's an unusual perspective in anthropology. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I will make a whole argument that is extremely valid.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, I was very much a part. Of, um, of the community. Um, I was on the founding board of Beginnings. Um, I was um, I, I got involved as much as I could uh, given my own uh, financial status. Um, I got as involved as much as I could in other organizations. I was in the room when the Mateel Community Center idea was floated. Um, I named the Citizens Observation Group um so I would I consider myself to have been um, in at the beginning of many of the organizations there and as committed um, and as active um, as, as any, I was very much a part of the uh, in it um, I do not wish to talk about my relationship to marijuana.
0: Would you feel comfortable speaking just to the the um the, I guess that because you wrote in your book, um, one of the things that that and we've heard from a few different people. We had another woman on, and I asked her her you know about the marijuana culture, and her uh-huh. response was was just it was so it was so great. It was that you know that it
2: wasn't a marijuana culture. <laughs> it, was not. it was, it was, a was com- not right. It the, was absolutely... That that was a side okay. aspect. I will tell you. I will tell you one thing. Okay, um, the very first um, year that I lived there. Um, <clears throat> we were casting about for, um, what, you know, what, what can we do? My, uh, my significant other had a job, um, and that was supporting us. Um, but we were casting about for, you know, what can be done here. Um, other people came to us and said, um, some of us are growing marijuana. Um, we've just grown a little bit. And um, and and we are able to supplement whatever our other uh, whatever other financial arrangements we have. We are able to supplement it by growing a few plants here and there.
3: Mm.
2: So my significant other <laughs> got a plant. Got one, we got one plant <laughs> and, and took it out in the woods and you know it was just an experiment. You know, can hey it grows out of the ground? You know, maybe we can grow it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we were we were totally unsuccessful. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that didn't go anywhere. So, um, so that you know, that's just an illustration of how uh, so many of us were not into marijuana. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. no idea that people could do that. You know, that whole the whole idea of growing marijuana to live on it um, that developed. Uh, you know a few years after I got there, you know, was Mm -hmm. developing as, you know, and that that didn't really um, become a real thing until maybe four or five years after I got there, that people, and by that I mean that there were people who, uh, that that was their livelihood, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: right. Um, People came there with inheritances, you know. uh, They were kind of ashamed that that was, I mean, it wasn't cool, but I had people confide to me, um, you know, I'm saying, how did you buy that piece of land and build that house? Well, I had a trust fund. I came into my trust fund. Okay, well, I'm very happy for you, um, but I didn't have a trust fund. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I've always seen it as early, from early on. I've always seen it as a tension um, in the community, you know, in the growth of the community and the ideals of the community, um, the whole issue of how are we going to live. And I you know there were occasions when I saw um, situations where those of us that came with a trust fund and didn't have to grow marijuana were very unsympathetic with other people who the only way they can live in the country is if they grow marijuana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, so, um, and I, I wrote about this in my book. Yeah, I just um. it. It was a reverse, you know, for, first it started, I was very nervous about the class system. I'm a leftist. You know, I'm Karl Marx all the way. I'm just, I'm as left as you get. You know, short of, you know, I'm not a communist, I'm not into violence, but, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I am into equality and the class system uh, I have been down on the class system uh, you know for a very long time you know even before Berkeley so I know I was nervous you know um, we we hippies have this ideal we say to each other that we're going to evaluate each person on the basis of their individual characteristics okay and um, uh, whatever you came from your family or whatever it was that doesn't matter, we're gonna make our connections based on um, our, our individual evaluations of each other, um, and we're all equal. Well, I sort of thought, yeah, okay, I'm, let's see how that works. Um, and then I noticed, well, okay, right off the top, those that came with money, and, some, and so later on there was a wave of professional people that came as well. So, those that came with money and did not have to grow marijuana, they started out being on the top of a mm-hmm. class mm. system. We're developing a new class system and they're on top. Mm. Then, over time, it kind of got flipped around. And mm. as marijuana became the industry, um, those who were the best growers <laughs> came out on the top. Plantation and they race. were very <laughs> snotty. Mm. You know, in my experience, they were very snotty about people who, for whatever reason, could not grow dope, like, say, let's start with women. Hmm. It's harder for women to grow dope. They're not as strong. you know i'm I, you know, I'm sorry, as an anthropologist, I have to say that. it's a biological fact. <laughs> Statistically speaking, women are not as physically strong as men, and they are not as able to run up and down the hills and do guerrilla gardening, especially if they're pregnant and have children. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right off the top, um, there was this snotty thing about, oh, well, if you're so poor, why don't you just go stick a couple of plants in the ground? Well, because I'm taking care of four kids under the age of eight. Let's yeah. start with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, new kind of class system. Um What was the question? Oh no, just you know. I think I. No, you you (laughs) went off on a tangent, but um.
1: No, it was it was great, but can we go back to because we were talking about well in your book you talk about um this the whole at the time you know what was happening with the environment and I guess people becoming more conscious of the environmental degradation and and part of this movement um, what I got out of the book was that there was this consciousness shift. Because that's what needed to happen because yes, yes. you had to things had to change right. and to change that uh, you know you got to start with yourself you got to change the culture and then uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is this you know the use of psychedelics and marijuana to kind of shift um, your psyche a bit so that you're more can okay, you well I, I would
2: tweak I would tweak what you just said okay um to not shift your conscience consciousness a bit <laughs> What I'm talking about is your consciousness gets ripped apart and rebuilt. Uh, and I think that happened. That is a major uh, part of what happened in the community, I think. That, um, that one, the major, one of the major unifying experiences that we all had uh, was some degree of uh, use of psychedelics um, and marijuana. Okay. Now, I would not, I would not make that um, a flat general statement that applies to everybody, okay, because mm-hmm. people, some people did more, some people did less, some people were, were casualties. I mean, I wouldn't want to ignore the group of people, you know, the group of refugees who came up just, be, just to dry out, you know, mm-hmm. either, to, either to dry out from drug use in the city or um, because they're using drugs and it's easier out here. Than it was in the city, you know. That's that's a group. I I did not include those people in my book because I was writing about ideals.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you know, I I defined my group in such a way that that I did not include those people because that was not the focus of the study.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But they were there. Um, so um, I think that what had that that a large variable is that you. Um, whether you did it when you were still in the city or whether you did it after you got there, um, you, you're using LSD or mushrooms or, or mescaline, whatever it is, and the, the, uh, the experience of what that is, is it removes from your consciousness everything that your culture put there. Hmm. If, you really, you know, if you really got stoned you really took, you know, you didn't just take a little bit. You did some real trips. Um, you lose your language. You lose your language ability. Um, you may lose your ability to figure out who are these people around you and what is their relationship to you. You know, you, it drops away from you. That's why um, part of the hippie culture, part of the counterculture, um, there were kind of a set of rules about how you do it You know, you do it, you choose your situation, you choose your place, as Castaneda would say. Mm -hmm. You choose your place so that you feel safe and you're with people you trust. And that's why you do it, because you lose your culture. um, And then what's left? You know, when that much, when when your culture is removed, what is left? Um, What is left is your uh, immediate perception of your environment your invi- you know you are you may lose um, your perception of where you stop and the environment starts you know you you lose proprioception which is your your sense of your space mm-hmm. um, all of this that, that I'm describing here all of this is scientific this has been established by studies of uh, of psychedelics uh, and marijuana to some extent what you know what they do um, So when you have that immediate experience of um, there is no separation between me and my environment, um, for me, that was a very spiritual thing. And I think for other people, a lot of other people, it was a very spiritual thing. Um, You just, um, you recognize how much a part of the environment you are. And then as you start coming down, pieces of your culture start coming back. You start getting your language back. You start, you know, but you're a new person now. You're coming back into your culture with a new, uh, a new experience, a new perception, a new worldview, a new way of looking at things around you. And I think that that, that, that visceral experience, um, I think to some extent that was the beginning of the environmental movement. And I could give you a specific of that, if you wanted.
0: I I guess I'm um I'm curious. You know, Annie and I were having the discussion on our way here, just um, just how much um, the subculture of Humboldt County has really, in many ways, kind of come to it's almost been subsumed by the larger, you know kind of American dream culture in many ways. And we to, I, and I'll just speak for myself. I think in many ways, we've lost our initial vision and our initial ideal. Um, and i I know that I, I think you speak really beautifully to the ability of a psychoactive substance to open up the potential for a shift.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: but i'm I'm curious because, you know, here we are in this modern day, you know, here in present time, you're seeing psychoactive substances have been fully assimilated into the mainstream. You know, you've got people that are going down to the Amazon for a week and then they come back and they say, I'm a shaman now. And they do ayahuasca <laughs> ceremonies yeah. in LA right, in their right, living room right. and charge hundreds of dollars. Right. You know, you've got people who, you know, you t- um, you know got articles being written in the Washington Post or in mainstream media about microdosing LSD at work so I you know. can perform better in the corporate environment. And and I hear what you're saying, and I think it's it. There's a I, I know from experience there's a deep deep kernel of truth in it. But I wonder, how does that stack up against this this idea of taking this powerful mind altering substance and assimilating it into the mainstream culture? I wonder. Okay.
2: I, th- I think that that, um, well.
3: <laughs>
2: it's a I big get, one. Okay, no wait, let, let me let me I'm, I'm gonna say th- say this carefully, okay. I have to I have to stipulate um that I have not really been part of the mainstream culture for about twenty years now. Mm. All right, let's make that seventeen. Seventeen was the last time that I had a nine to fiver job as a reporter, okay. Um and and the last the, the last three years of my working uh, of my working past I was a reporter outside of Humboldt County. I was a reporter in Amador County, which is close to Sacramento. So, you know, so I got a real, you know, I went back and revisited the mainstream culture um about 20 years ago. Um and then um I sort of dropped out again. Um so for the last 17 years, um I have been um not directly you know not directly interacting with those people so i kind of hesitate to say what exactly are they doing i'm not sure what they're doing but my first reaction is that when we did it in my time period when we did it as i say we we had there was a, a there was a kind of a set of rules there was sort of an understanding we had our own cultural, it was part of our culture, part of hippie culture. There was a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And we understood, you know, you mentioned Amazonia. Um, we understood that people um, that who's, who ha- incorporate psychedelics into their culture, native peoples, I'm thinking peyote mm-hmm. um, native peoples, they had a very specific way to do it. There, there were rituals involved. They worked up to it for years, you know, and it was, a, it, it was an understood part of their culture. I am very, very nervous about people um, wanting instant enlightenment, you know, um, and doing it without that, that cultural basis, uh, without doing it without those, mm-hmm. uh, those understandings. Uh, and that cultural context Uh, I think it could that it has the potential to have some bad repercussions Uh, and I I would also follow that up with you know what I was saying um, uh, about our taking psychedelics and how that connected us to the environment Um, I would also uh, hasten to say that I would not ignore in the general counterculture there were many acid casualties Everything that happened in the haight Ashbury, um, I'm I would not deny that for a moment, and I would I would go back and say that is because those people were not taking it um, with the cultural context and backing um, that that many of us were taking it, and I I believe that is why they were acid casualties, and I think there's the potential for this new movement. Um, to have some similar kind of uh, fallout. Um,
0: so I, I wrote down, Gentry, as you were talking, just, you know, I, I think it's really key what you say about, you know, there's a there's a right way to partake of a mind-altering substance, you know, when it's done with the right amount of cultural context, and I would even say, you know, reverence.
2: <laughs> Re- reverence and preparation. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm
0: just interested and and... I don't mean to be overly simplistic, um, but how does that apply to, if there's a right way and a wrong way to consume a a consciousness-altering plant, would you you argue then, too, there is a a right way and a wrong way to work with, cultivate... (laughs) grow oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, ooh, and, and how does that apply to the current situation absolutely. that we
2: <laughs> okay well, well once again i have to i have to remind people i have not been in so i have not lived in southern humboldt for 17 years so all i know about the way that it's being done there is what i see on facebook mm-hmm. and what people tell me who come to visit me mm-hmm. from southern humboldt okay but in my in my book I deliberately broke. Off. I made my ethnographic present,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: for people who are not anthropologists. That means I defined the period of time for which um, I feel responsible for what I'm saying. Okay, the, you know everything I'm saying it applies from this year to this year. I cut it off at 1985 mm-hmm. specifically because um, that was that was about the point in time. When I began to see um, the influx from the city of people who were not countercultural, and who were coming only to grow marijuana, now those people did not have the environmental values, and they did not have the community values. Um, they they may have some of them may have adopted them after they got there. That's possible, but I had I was hearing a lot of stories and uh, having. Uh, experiences of my friends who were experiencing um, people who came you know people who came directly from the city may you know maybe organized crime maybe you know peripherally criminal um, maybe just you know just uh, this looks like maybe this is a way we can make money you know but that's the only reason that they were coming so they they don't care those people did not care if they... St- Number one, started fires. There were a lot of... fires was on the uh, volunteer Beginnings Volunteer Fire Department. There were fires that were started by people uh, camping out, growing dope, um, and by indoor, badly run indoor grows. Um, <clears throat> they started fires. They um, destroyed the roads. They did not know how to drive on those roads, and so they... You know, they did not participate in the maintenance of the roads, so the roads are crumbling down into the creeks. And you know, mm. they uh, they were using um, pesticides and uh, chemicals, and um, you know, drawing way, not being careful with their water, um, uh, growing too much. Um, people were taking bulldozers and you know, scraping out. Huge pieces of the hillside, with no concept whatsoever of what that was going to do um, to the ecosystem there. Um, so, um, I I can't speak to uh, what is the degree to which that has changed um, the marijuana growing situation in Southern Humboldt County. I I only know that um, that it was getting very bad. Uh, in in 1985, when I cut off the end of my book, um, and that I have had no, there nobody has told me anything that convinces me that it has gotten any better. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, as far as I can tell, from where I sit, it looks like it's gonna, it's getting worse, and it's probably gonna get worse, even worse, mm-hmm. because now that now that it's legal, there are going to be um, that that many more people who come up only to grow and uh, the profit motive, you know, uh, has been increasingly taking over and it probably will continue to take over unless um, the people who care about the community and the values that the community started out with do something about it.
0: The following is an excerpt from a poem entitled Song of Twelve by the poet Deer Hawk. Um, it's featured at the end of Gentry Andrew's book. And at the ending, it mentions that this is dedicated to all the newcomers in Mateel, remembering that the true old-timers were here at least 5,000 years ago. But God damn it, I ain't prejudiced. And 6,000 cash is 6,000 cash. Sign on the dotted line, Jim. A dozen years ago today, that man of real estate realized and told his friends, you know, there's probably other kids like him, and a hundred dollars an acre might not be too much to ask after all. Then began my payment, my payment of dues to this land, dues to this territory where many bones lay, among the standing people's forest skeletons on one as yet could sell to the mill. Then it was the deer, and hawks, and fire-scorched fur. Hear me announce, this is my land! There was no dispute, but the silence sickened. Sickened in Matil's memories of ten dozen years ago, when the ancestors' people of Matol, Sinkion, Nongatil, Lassik, Wailaki, Kato, who had known harmony with all life being sacred, fell to frontier genocide, Humboldt Vietnam suicide fell to ragged, self-righteous, outlaw troops of empire. I say the dues must be paid, and thence flows our art.
1: Gentry Anders' book, Beyond Counterculture, The Community of Matil* can be downloaded for free from the Humboldt State University Library website. Or you can follow a link from her blog, shumgentry.wordpress.com. That's S-H-U-M-J-E-N-T-R-I.wordpress.com. We will play the rest of the interview later in the season, where she explains voluntary simplicity, offing the pig in you, and shares with us the glimmers of hope she sees in the world. This has been Mend Podcast, and you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Thank you for listening.